fear. Our response to fear is interesting. Fear can be a motivator for action, and it can also be a paralyzer keeping us from action. An example from the animal kingdom. Uh, take two rabbits facing some kind of life-threatening danger. One rabbit will run when it's frightened. The other rabbit will freeze, paralyzed in fear. People do the same kind of thing, actually. For you, the fear of getting fired may motivate you to get up in the morning and show up to work on time. For you, the fear of failing, it may deter you from trying skydiving. But that one, it's, that one kind of creeps up on you there. The fear of failure in skydiving. The Bible tells us to fear God. But there are different kinds of fearing God. There's the fear of God which motivates us to worship and adore Him and want to know Him more, and that is the kind of fear of God that we want to have. There's also a fear of God, though, which causes a person to shrink back from Him, to hide from Him, to avoid Him. Well, last time in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus answered questions about when His second coming and the end of the age will take place. Jesus told us to watch out that there will be many false prophets and messiahs who will come. Jesus told us to not be alarmed and frightened when we see troubling things taking place in this world, but to trust the Lord. Jesus told us that no one but the Father in heaven knows when the second coming of Jesus will be. Jesus told us, that his coming will be sudden at an, at an unexpected moment. So we need to be watchful, prepared, ready. Well, today we're going to look at some parables by Jesus in which he again teaches that we need to be watchful, prepared, ready, as well as being diligent in doing his will while we wait for his return. In all of these parables, the Master's return, which corresponds with the second coming of Jesus, is later than expected. These stories about the Master coming back later than expected is particularly relevant for us in our day. It has been some 2,000 years since Jesus left. A long time has passed. Some may be tempted to ask, where is this coming that he talked about? But Peter encourages us in his Second letter with these words in 2 Peter 3, verse 3. He says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. If we skip down to verse 8. But do not, for, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Well, turning your Bible to Matthew chapter 24, we're picking up in verse 45. Matthew 24, verse 45. Jesus said, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time, and he he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him and at an hour he's not aware of. He'll cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this parable, Jesus, he contrasts two kinds of character that a servant might have. If the servant continues to faithfully carry out the work that his master has given him to do in his master's absence, when the master returns, he will reward him generously. But if the servant is wicked, mistreating those under his charge and pursuing his own selfish desires rather than doing what his master had told him to do, then when the master returns, he will punish that servant severely and get rid of him. The master will return at an unexpected moment, catching that wicked servant unaware, and it will be too late then for that servant to repent and change his ways. Now the fate of the wicked servant in this parable In verse 51, it may strike us as excessively harsh, being cut into pieces and so forth, when looked at through the lens of our current culture sensibilities. We should keep in mind, though, that first, these parables, they serve to illustrate spiritual truths, but not every detail in a parable necessarily corresponds with spiritual reality. The wicked servant being cut into pieces in the parable doesn't necessarily mean that that will be literally the fate of a wicked servant in the kingdom of God. Second, these parables are told within the context of and expressed in terms understood by first century Middle Eastern culture, not popular modern day Western culture. And finally, the severe consequences presented in these parables, they're intended to drive home the serious nature of the things that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about eternal life and death issues. Being cut into pieces will be the least of our worries when we consider the eternal context of these things. What's the message being conveyed in this parable? The main ideas for us to take away from this parable are two that come to mind. First, as in other parables we have looked at, the second coming of Jesus will be on a day when we do not expect him and at an hour we are not aware of. So it's important for us to always be ready. Second, 
We should be diligently obeying the commands of the Lord and carrying out the work that He's given each of us to do while we wait for His return, no matter how long the wait might be. In this next parable, in the first 13 verses of Matthew 25, Jesus again illustrates the need for us to be prepared for His return at any moment. It begins in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry ran out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. The Greek word that's translated into English by the NIV, which is what I'm reading from here, and several other English Bibles as virgins, refers to young unmarried women. Some of the other English Bibles translate the word here as bridesmaid or maiden. The general idea is that these are young unmarried women who are intending to participate in this wedding festivities. The parable describes a typical wedding ceremony in that culture at the time. A processional welcomes the bridegroom coming from the bride's home where the formal wedding takes place to a banquet at the bridegroom's home. This banquet marks the beginning of the festivities that often last several days. Apparently in this story, everyone is expected to have their own light, a torch or lamp, to welcome the bridegroom and then to enter into the banquet. Those without a light would be assumed to be uninvited guests and not be allowed into the party. In this story, the bridegroom is delayed in coming to the banquet for some unspecified reason. He's delayed so long, in fact, it says that all ten of these young women in the story fall asleep. Word is finally given late into the night that the bridegroom has arrived. The young women all wake up and they get ready to greet him. And at this point, the five foolish young women realize that they don't have enough oil in their lamps. They ask the five young wise women to share their oil with them, but they refuse. There would not be enough oil for any of them if that were done. The foolish women will need to go into town and buy more oil for themselves. 
Now, some of you might be thinking at this point that the five wise women should have shared their oil with the five foolish women. Sharing is usually the right thing to do. One of the very first lessons we're taught as a little one, right? Share with your brother or sister. Share with your friend. Share with me. Under the circumstances of this particular story, though, that is not expected, and in fact, it is discouraged. This is one of those instances where it is important that we keep our focus on the points the parable is intended to teach rather than trying to assign and draw out meaning from every detail in the story. This parable is not intended to teach about the ethics of sharing. The lack of preparation by the five foolish women should not endanger the women who have wisely prepared for this moment. And the preparation by these five wise women is not transferable to the five foolish women. In a similar way, spiritual preparation is not transferable from one person to another either. We each need to be prepared ourselves. We each need a relationship with the Lord. The Lord doesn't have grandchildren, only sons and daughters. If you have a grandmother who used to pray all the time and was deeply involved in the life of the church, but you're not at all in a relationship with Jesus Christ yourself, you need to know that your grandmother's relationship with Jesus is not going to make up for your lack of a relationship with him. Unfortunately for these five foolish young women, the errand to get more oil takes so long that they miss welcoming the bridegroom and the formal entrance into the banquet. When they try to get in, they're refused entry. The bridegroom tells them he doesn't know them. Again, to prevent anyone from thinking that the bridegroom is being cruel for not letting these five latecomers into the party, we need to realize that these are not people who have long desired to come to the wedding banquet and they have simply made a miscalculation about the amount of oil that they needed to bring for their lamps. Verse 3 of the parable points out that the foolish woman didn't bring any oil for their lamps. Instead, these are people who never gave the wedding and banquet any real respect to begin with. They have been preoccupied and distracted with other things. The wedding banquet had no real importance to them until the bridegroom arrived and the party is about to begin. Then suddenly they realize the importance and now they want in. And in order to get in, they want to take advantage of the thoughtful investment and preparation of the other young women. Give us some of your oil. It doesn't say it in the story, but I can imagine the five foolish women even blaming the five wise women for their not being able to get into the banquet. If you had shared some of your oil with us, we could have gotten in. If you had told us earlier that we were going to need oil, we would have been prepared. It's your fault 
that we were not able to get into the wedding banquet. Blaming someone else for our own irresponsibilities and poor choices is something that people have been doing from the beginning of human history. These five young women have no one to blame for their fate but themselves. At the second coming of Jesus, there will be many people who will suddenly realize the importance of what is taking place. They spent their life ignoring Jesus. When they should have been preparing for that moment, they always had something better to do. The bridegroom tells these women when they try to get in, truly I tell you, I don't know you. I don't know you. Verse 13 drives home the big idea of the parable. When it says, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. And keep watch means to be prepared for his coming. Some thoughts drawn from the parable. Like the delayed coming of the bridegroom, the second coming of Jesus may be longer in coming than people expect. Like the wise young women, we need to be prepared and continue to be prepared for the coming of Jesus, no matter when it will be, no matter how long it is in coming. Considering the foolish young women, those who are not prepared for his coming will find it too late to get prepared when the moment actually arrives. It'll be too late then. Considering the foolish young women, preparedness is not something that can be transferred or shared with another. Each of us needs to be prepared. Each of us needs to know and be known by Jesus, the bridegroom. Finally, in this next parable, it further illustrates the need to be prepared and faithfully carrying out the work that he's given us to do while we wait for his return. So beginning in verse 14, it says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So in this story, while the master is away for a time, he entrusts each of his three servants with a large sum of money according to their individual abilities. And when he returns, he asks for an accounting from each of them of what they have done with the money that he had entrusted them with. The NIV Bible translates the Greek into English as bags of gold. 
The actual word here is talent. And a talent represented a unit of weight or amount of silver or gold or money, for example. The monetary value of a talent varied in ancient times, depending on what it was that it was measuring and so forth. But it's estimated that in today's dollars, a talent, as used here in this particular story, would be in the neighborhood of a half a million dollars. The point is this. Each of these servants has been entrusted with a significant amount of money. This is not kids' milk money that we're talking about here. Well, the first two servants immediately go to work, and each doubles the amount of money entrusted to them. They each make 100% return on their investment. The third servant simply safeguards the money from being lost or stolen by hiding it in a hole in the ground. He wants to make sure he doesn't lose any of his master's money. Verse 19. Well, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So the first servant, he shows his master that he has used the five talents he had been entrusted with to make five more. And we're not told how this was accomplished. It's assumed to have been done through honest, diligent, hard work perhaps through a business of some kind that he established, that sort of thing. The master replies, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. In in other words, the servant is praised for his efforts, generously rewarded for his faithful service, and he's invited to share in his master's abundance and blessing. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So the second servant, he shows his master that he has used the two talents that he had been given to make two more. Again, we're not told how that was accomplished, but it's assumed to have been through honest, diligent, hard work. The master responds saying the same thing that he said to the first servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The servant is praised for his efforts, generously rewarded for his faithful service, and he's invited to share in his master's abundance and his blessing. And then 24, it says, Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. 
So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. This third servant, he comes before his master and he gives back all of the money that he had been entrusted with, explaining that he knows that his master is a hard man, harvesting where he has not sown and gathering where he has not scattered seed. In other words, he knows his master is cruel and unjust and can't be trusted. The servant says, so I was afraid and went out and I hid your gold in the ground. And as expected, the master doesn't respond well to what this servant has done and said. He calls the servant wicked and lazy. The word translated into English is lazy. It means lazy, hesitating, faithless. The master tells the servant that if he knew the master is cruel and unjust and can't be trusted, then he should have at least put the money in the bank so that the master would have earned interest on it. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So rather than being rewarded, this third servant is thrown outside into the darkness. I want to reflect on this third servant for a moment in closing. This third servant in the story has a faulty understanding of who his master is. And that faulty understanding hindered him from doing anything with the money that he had been given. He's afraid of his master. He believes his master is cruel and unfair and can't be trusted. How do you see your master, the Lord? Is he cruel and unfair and can't be trusted? Is he quick to punish and slow to forgive? Is he vindictive? Is he unreasonable? Does he take what isn't his? Or is he kind and just and can be trusted? Is he quick to forgive? Is he generous with mercy and grace? Is he big-hearted? Does he bring joy into the places that he occupies? See, our understanding of what the Lord is like can have a huge impact on our life. It's unfortunate that many see the Lord like this third servant sees his master. And like this third servant, they're so afraid of the consequences if they fail that they just take what the Lord gives them and bury it in the dirt so they won't lose it. Another way this kind of 
faulty understanding of the Lord can express itself in our life as working ourselves to death in a misguided attempt to earn our master's approval. We, we believe the way we please our master, the Lord, is through achievements and accomplishments. In fact, a story like this one told in this parable can serve to justify that kind of messed up thinking. We can think, I have to work hard and achieve the kind of results that those first two servants did, so my master will be pleased with me. But that's not an accurate view of the Lord either. The Lord gives us meaningful things to do with our life because he loves us, not so we can earn his love. Should I repeat that? The Lord gives us meaningful things to do with our life because he loves us, not so we can earn his love. The Lord's primary interest in you and me is not what he can get out of us. He doesn't need our accomplishments and achievements. Don't mean to hurt your feelings. But he doesn't really need it. He's not sitting there hoping that Jeff comes through for him or Christianity is doomed. In fact, he knows that if he has any dependence on me, he's in serious trouble. The Lord's primary interest in you and me is you and me. The Lord's primary interest in you and me is you and me. The Lord wants to create a new nature in us, give us a new meaningful life, and draw us into an ever more intimate relationship with Him. He doesn't need our stuff. And he doesn't need us to, to do stuff for him. He made the universe. Christian, as a child of God, we live our life over this huge safety net called the love and the grace of God. We're, 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 we're kind of like acrobats on the trapeze, high above the ground, learning to fly. And we're swinging and leaping from bar to bar, hoping to never miss. But when we do miss, and we will miss sometimes, and we fall, we have a safety net. God's love and grace to catch us and to give us the opportunity to try again. The only one who's really a failure in the end is the one who never risks Failure. See, this parable, it never says what would have happened if the third servant had taken the money that had been given to him and he invested it in some way and he ended up losing it all. Knowing the true nature of our master, though, I think I can complete that part of the story for us. The servant would have come to his master broken and discouraged, feeling terrible that he had lost what his master had given him. 
And his master, rather than chiding him, would have taken him up into his arms and loved him and encouraged him. And then he would have given him more money to try again. That's the nature of our master. We can become deeply discouraged with our repeated failures to be who we ought to be as God's children. We need to remember the the true nature of our Father, of our Master. His love and His grace, they give us strength and courage to get up and try again and again and again. I love that verse in Philippians 1.6, where it says, being confident of this, being absolutely convinced about this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you is going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a promise to you. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your good word. And Father, we thank you for who you really are rather than who our fears create sometimes in our own heads. We thank you for your love, Lord. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your unfailing love and grace. I pray that you would encourage your children this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have entrusted us to participate in what you're doing in this world. Lord, I pray that it would fill us with joy rather than fear that we get to be part of what you're doing. Bless each of your children this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.